It is our goal here at Grace Bible Church of Tampa to equip you all for the work of the ministry. We want you to go out and make disciples in the world. In light of this, there is a common motto among many pastors today, ministry is messy. Why is it messy? Well, ultimately, it's messy because it involves people. (laughs) We humans have our sinful tendencies, and we don't like to be confronted with sin. And we definitely don't like to turn from our sin, right? When we are confronted, we are prone to twist the truth to allow us to remain in our sin. So as ambassadors for Christ, we must be clear with the gospel message to people. And then the next thing you know, even if we're very clear, people will turn around and claim that we said the very opposite of what we said. It's mind-blowing at times when I hear a phrase or see somebody and they say something like, yeah, don't you remember when Pastor Mike said so-and-so? I'm like, when did I say that? I see it even in my book reports from Clearwater College. It's very interesting it shows up. Uh, I'm not sure if I like this book by J.I. Packer because he said this, and this little phrase that they say is never found in the entire book. <laughs> and I wrote this one young guy said, hey, what are you doing? Where did he say this? Where did Packer say this? He sent me back an email saying, I can't find it. <laughs> Maybe he didn't say it. Something about our hearts, huh? Wants to twist everything, turn everything. So often, ministry becomes this giant comedy of errors. Yet at the same time, we see our sovereign Lord is still building His church. In His grace, He turns disaster after disaster into more disciples for Himself. Only God can take a disaster like what we see in our passage today and turn it for His glory. But we see a neat passage. This is one of those that I I wish I could camp out. And especially verse 15, I think I could preach 10 sermons on it. It's an amazing sermon in the midst of a very messy ministry experience for the apostles. Ministry is messy, but God still saves. That's the focus of the message today. As the gospel ministry in Iconium moves on to spread into the pagan world, as we see in chapter 14, verses 8 to 20. We saw last time the gospel ministry in Iconium was the gospel was proclaimed, and the gospel was fruitful, the gospel was rejected, the gospel was stable, the gospel was divisive, the gospel was persecuted again, and yet the gospel was enduring. And so today we see the gospel spreads into the area of Lyconia, And if you look at this, this is a map of modern-day Turkey uh, with the titles of or the cities that we're going to be dealing with. Right here is Iconium, and Lystra is here, and Antioch is up here, Pisidia, and down here is Derbe. So they, they were here, they were threatened to be stoned, so they go down here, and this whole area is the Lyconian Valley. This area right in here. 
So most would say that Iconium was a part of that same valley in Lyconia. So we're going to be today in this, in this section that focuses in on Lystra. So Luke explains the gospel ministry in this area. And again, we're going to see the spread of it into a very pagan city. We see a community without God often misinterprets the gospel message and its messengers. The pagan world suppresses the revelation of God and exchanges the truth for a lie. This is a glimpse of the world that we are living in, folks. We need to understand that this is what we're living in. By by seeing this description of the events, we get a glimpse into the world we live in and how we should respond and what we should expect from the people around us. So our passage today breaks down into four sections. That is, God's supernatural confirmation of the gospel found in verses 8 to 10. Notice in your Bibles. And then... The crowd's wicked response to the revelation in verses 11 to 13. Then we'll see the apostles' humble correction of their theology in verses 14 to 18. And finally, we'll conclude with the community's persecution of the apostles in 19 to 20. Let's start with the God's supernatural confirmation of the gospel. Look again at your Bibles in Acts 14, verse 8. Look down and follow along with me. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on the lame man and had seen that the lame man had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. We see in this first section, God used a miracle to confirm the gospel message. The miracle was necessary in Lystra because most likely there was no Jewish synagogue in the city. Remember, we've talked about this throughout as Acts has gone along. It's almost every time shown that Paul would go to the place where the Jews had met and that's where he would start his evangelism. Yet he walks into this city and there it does not appear to be a Jewish synagogues, synagogue. The Jews who came and influenced the stoning of Paul in 1419 came from Antioch and Iconium. So they came from a different area. They came down when they heard that Paul had moved down to this area. This appears to have been a very unbiblical community. They had a very little if any, scriptural influence upon them. They had religion, folks. Get that. You see it. But it was based totally on the Greek gods, as we will see. I find it interesting. I don't know about you guys, but when I I read and I hear the history uh, lessons that my wife reads to the kids in their homeschooling, I always get, it's always intriguing to me to listen to these Greek god mythological God stories and how they make made their man-made gods. They almost sound comical when you read them and listen and, and, and read them. They, they're very much somewhat like our Marvel characters, you know, or things like that. And at times we might fall into the trap of thinking, oh, well, these were just mythical gods they made up. You know, they knew it was, you know, this was just entertainment. No, they really believed it. And this was a city that embraced these Greek gods. 
They had religion, but they did not have the one true God. It's interesting to see that this miracle in a pagan setting actually led to bigger problems. In other words, you do a miracle in a place where people were very religious, and guess what happens? A catastrophe, a disaster. We'll see that. It also appears that only one man in the city gets saved. It appears in the city there may have been others, but it's unlikely. If you look at your passage, I came to this conclusion because there's no mention of believers in Luke's account. As we have seen in all the other passages, as we've gone through here, we've seen him talk about many believed, or a few believed, some believed. But in this passage, there's only one who believed. So you have a very religious city that was dead in sin. He is the only man probably described as having faith. Again, this is evidence of the messiness of ministry. The number of believers or the size of the harvest does not automatically determine the success of ministry. Size does not always reveal success. However, the testimony of the missionaries in Lystra is a profound revelation of God's glory. The way that they act, they display Christ in Lystra as well as anywhere they had been previously. And the reason why is because faithfulness to God in all circumstances is a key fruit for a successful ministry. Okay, did you get that? Are you faithful? (laughs) If you are faithful to the Lord... Through your circumstances, that is evidence of a successful ministry, folks. And in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas knock it out of the park. They are faithful to God in a very difficult setting. We see here God used a miracle to confirm his apostles. Notice the description of the man who was in need of a miracle. Notice in your Bibles it says, He was a disabled man. He could not walk. He had no strength in his feet. He had never walked. He was this way from birth. In a Roman pagan culture, it was truly God's grace, common grace, that this man was still alive when the missionaries showed up. Like many cultures today, the lame and disabled children were left outside to die. Animals would come and scavenger the babies. If they found out that they didn't have, weren't able to walk, it's just an absolute act of God's common grace that this guy was still alive. Do you understand that the way that we kill our babies around the world is just evidence of what's always been going on for history of humanity? The moment that we figure out, unfortunately, in our wicked world that we can get rid of babies that have any kind of deformity at all, they're going to start killing them. They're already killing them for that reason around the world. Get it before I see it. Then somehow I can sear my conscience. This guy, it's, a, it's all grace that he's even there. God had graciously preserved this man Someone must have shown compassion to him. But the disabled man was obviously the 
outcast of the community. And thus we bring along that theme that Luke has shown us from the beginning of his gospel, that he's all about the outcast. He's all about the broken. That's who God is about. It's about that hurting one. So this man is described as a disabled man. He's also described as a listening man. Take note of this, a listening man. The man took note of what Paul was saying. He had ears to hear. The lame man's feet weren't working, but his ears were working great. And his heart was inclined to God. It appears that God's grace was working in his heart. Notice he had faith to be made well. This can literally be translated, he had faith to be saved. If you notice in your Bible, there might be even a little note in your index that it could be translated that way. And I would suggest that it probably should be translated that way. The word sozo is used for save. Most likely, that's what I think it's saying. He had faith to be saved. I lean that Paul, by the Holy Spirit's help, knew that the man had believed unto salvation. And thus, God in His grace chose to heal the man through Paul's confirming and therefore confirming Paul's message of the gospel. This should be translated faith to be saved rather than faith to be healed. Now, it's important to note, the fact is, faith was often a prerequisite of healing during the time of the New Testament. The point here is, faith that saves is the same faith God blessed with a special conformatory or confirmatory miracle and healed him. Remember, again, the Gospels were not written down yet. So in a pagan land where there was no Old Testament influence, a miracle was used by God to confirm the apostles' message. And that's what it looks like here. Remember, as Hebrews states, God used signs and wonders. We know this from Hebrews chapter 2. You can mark this down and look it up later. Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So God is saying, in effect, when Paul heals this man, their message is true. Listen to this man. It was a confirmation. In our passage, we see one of these signs God used to testify with his apostles. What I find very interesting is that the results of this miracle were contrary to the way many view miracles in the Word of Faith movement today. This miracle leads to total blasphemy. Now, did it serve its purpose? Absolutely but not in the way that it might have been originally thought. The fact is, is that the message was confirmed to us who read Luke's account in Acts. And it made more of an impact there than it did in the city. Nobody in the city appears to have even got saved by the miracle. The miracle did nothing. Matter of fact, it led to blasphemy. This becomes more evident that the miracles don't save. Again, it is only by grace through faith in the gospel alone that we are saved. I could do 15 miracles on this stage and it would not save a single person in this room. 
Miracles don't save. And this passage shows it, doesn't it? Because the heart of man is wicked above all else. And they will take a miracle and turn it for their own idol worship, which is exactly what happens. So does the miracle confirm the message? Yes, it does. But guess who's the one that it's getting conformed to? The reader of Acts. Us. The ones that then see, oh, it's not about the miracle, it's about the message. And it does verify the message. However, notice the glory of the miracle was not a slow process as many miracles or so-called miracles are described today. You know, wait until you get healed in a couple weeks and then come back and tell us how it went. He was healed immediately. Notice the miracle was effective, instantaneous, and comprehensive. Paul said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. Again, Paul demonstrated his authoritative message here. He commanded the man to stand up, and the man leaped up and was walking. This was shocking, folks. This was a guy who had never walked, healed, and now was walking. The whole community knew the man was a lame man. This caused a huge uproar in the city. This was no small miracle. So how are miracles interpreted by the unconverted person? How do people interpret a miracle? Well, the Word of Faith movement would say miracles produce more conversions. They they may sound harsh, but this may sound harsh. Listen, but the, the Word of Faith movement and the classic apologist and evidentialist... Oh, this is a big one. Now listen closely have something in common. They have something in common. When I say a classic apologist or an evidentialist, it's that person that says, I've got to give you 15 proofs for the existence of God before I call you to repentance. If I could get you believing in God, then I will talk about the gospel. It's a two-step process for many of them. Okay? They're very much like the Word of Faith movement. You say, how? They believe pre-evangelism words or deeds can can convert a person. They will say something like this. The Word of Faith people say, show them a miracle and then everybody in the place will believe, which is a lie. The classic apologist would say, give them enough proofs and then what? They'll believe. Again, that's not the way it's going to work. Beloved, that doesn't work in your job place either. If somebody says, come up to and they come up to you and they say, prove to me the Bible exists. Well, if you spend 10, or the, not that the Bible exists, but God exists and the Bible is true. If you spend hours and hours and hours arguing with them about the probability of God, you've missed the whole point. The fact of the matter is, is that everybody knows there's a God in their heart, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Very, very important. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by the grace of God that can convert a soul. And it's demonstrated here in Acts chapter 14. The miracle, in fact, leads to a blasphemous response. Notice, this brings us to the second point. The crowd's wicked response to the revelation. 
In verses 11 to 13 it states, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought an oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. I wonder if this reaction blindsided the missionaries. (laughs) I wonder if they were, what are you doing? Were they expecting something like this? God used them to do a miracle, and the next thing they know, the whole community is worshiping them. The city called them gods. The local pagan priest brings out oxen and extras for a pagan sacrifice to worship the missionaries. This is the worst possible scenario for a missionary. (laughs) A true missionary of God says, Oh, Please don't make it about me. Paul was the ambassador of God. He was given the privilege of participating with God in this miracle, but it was God who had done the work. Do you see, folks, how shocking this would have been for them? And do you see the depravity of humans' hearts here? Do you see how depraved we are as human beings? When you see this passage, it should stand out clearly for you. Paul was only an instrument in the great display of the power of God. Paul spoke to the man saying, stand up, because God had healed the man. But this town saw Paul as some source of miracles, the power that he was literally Hermes. And the town began to attribute deity to Paul and Barnabas. Why? Well, here's why. Because the heart is deceitful above all else. The heart of mankind takes the glory of God and exchanges it for the true worship of God, for worship of the creature. This is what our hearts do apart from God. This is all of the world's religions today also. Note that. This heart of every one of us apart from God. This is who we are, and this is why there are so many religions. Oh, we all must see just how gracious this is that we know and embrace the truth of the gospel. If you embrace it, it is only by the grace of God that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that apart from the grace of God, we are all Muslims? Or Hindus. That's us. We need to understand that what Israel did after the Exodus, remember, by attributing their redemption to a golden calf, is exactly what these Gentile nations were doing by attributing the miracle to Paul and Barnabas. It's the same thing. We need to understand that the human heart is an idol-making factory, as Calvin stated. It interprets everything through its dead, lost condition and nature. We live in a world of idolaters. Do you understand that? We are all born idolaters. If it was not for the miraculous grace of God, we'd all be dead people, spiritually dead just like these in Lystra. 
If you believe in God, it's only because of God's grace. And if your God is the God of the Bible, it's only because of the grace of God. You only embrace this because of Him. Now, what makes this sin so repulsive? It's the object of their worship after seeing the revelation of God. These people credited the miracle to Paul and Barnabas. And ultimately, they stated that their gods had become these men and done the miracle. Isn't that just like us? Take our God, attribute it to somebody else so that we can get glory for picking the right God. That's my God. They literally were attributing it to Paul and Barnabas. These people credited their miracles to men that had just visited their city. By the way, there was a, as I was reading through my commentaries, that apparently there was a a Greek myth that said that at one point somebody did come to that area, one of the gods, and they did not treat them well, so there was a great famine that came upon the land. So you can see that it all played together, didn't it? Get ready. Let's give credit where it shouldn't be given. What's interesting is just how deceptive the enemy is here. How it could could be very tricky for the missionaries too. Is is Paul not in an impossible circumstance? Very difficult. What are they saying? The missionaries were proclaiming a gospel that said this. Jesus is God who became man to die for sin and free mankind from sin, and he rose from the dead to do it. Jesus did miracles to confirm his deity, and Jesus was now calling all men everywhere to repent and believe in him. Now, do you see how close that is to what they are saying? It's it's close, but it's miles apart, right? (laughs) Because one is true and the other is a lie. This is how the enemy is. He takes and he twists and he makes it look just, just close enough when, in fact, everything they say, the opposite is true. It's wrong. These missionaries were Christ messengers who were being empowered to proclaim his name and his glory. And they were exalting the one true creator God who became a man and redeemed a people for himself. They were exalting the Trinity. But the false step prophets, that false prophet, steps up and attributes the miracle to their own false God. In fact, attributing the miracle to Zeus and Hermes, saying, in effect, Zeus and Hermes have become men, these men, Paul and Barnabas. They are Zeus, Zeus and Hermes. Come, let us worship and bow down to these men who are really Zeus and Hermes. That's what they were saying. And the crowds were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as their false gods incarnate. This is evil, isn't it? Look how wicked this is. Oh, folks, do you understand this kind of stuff just absolutely petrifies me? You know why it petrifies me? Because... How many people in America say that they believe in God? 85%? But all they're doing is exactly what these people are doing. 
All too many people have a God that they've made up in their own mind, and they may even name him Jesus, but he doesn't look like the Jesus of this Bible at all. This is what our secular society has done. The enemy is evil. He copies and he clouds everything. Do you see how deceptive he is here? We need to know this is the enemy. He seeks to mess up all of our understanding. He seeks to steal glory for his own wicked pleasures. He has his followers and he works in them to get worship for his false gods. He constructs in the minds of men. So we see the enemy is deceptive and the temptation is real too. Notice, now Paul, not now because Paul and Barnabas truly knew God, the temptation was not a problem for them. But listen folks, notice again just what a trap this would have been for anyone who was lost and doing ministry for self-gratification reasons. Oh, please, please pay, pay attention. Get this, pay focus, stay focused at this moment. Paul and Barnabas respond perfectly to this temptation. But I want you to think just for a second what somebody, if they were doing ministry for self-gratifying reasons, what they would do if they were put in this position. Oh, do you understand that this is how false religions grow? This is exactly what happens. The people were worshiping the messengers. That's what they were doing. And that's exactly what makes false religions grow. Again, this is a trap of ministry. If a person enters the ministry for anything other than God's glory and to sacrificially serve others, the enemy will cause the people to worship the messenger and this will lead to an even greater fall. Oh, do you see this? Look at all the false religions. Look at what's happened. I had an opportunity to watch this movie on the false religion of Scientology this week. Uh, I just absolutely... It baffles my mind that it's called Christian Scientists. What? Christian Scientology. Oh, my. It was shocking. It is a religion based or built off an egomaniac, Ron Hubbard. He was a total madman. A psychopath that was all about himself. Hubbard was a compulsive liar who in the end was made, who in the end made a god for people to follow. The religion is strange. It appears to be a dying religion. It has less than 50,000 followers now. But what's so amazing about it is they have $5 billion worth of property that they own now all over the world. And a bunch of it's over here in Clearwater. And it's moving into town, I've heard. The plan of the religion is to promote through the famous followers. That's how they do it. They promote through John Travolta and Tom Cruise. But friends, as I watched, I thought of my passage, I thought, there is truly nothing new under the sun. It just happens again. It's always this way. What happened to Paul and Barnabas is exactly what's happened and what's done to Hubbard. 
They have pictures of him and they worship this guy. And the new guy, Miscavige, the new leader, man, he is like a god to them. Tom Cruise, another god to him. them. That's exactly what happens. Now think about all the false religions of the world. The Buddhists have Buddha. The Muslims have Muhammad. The Roman Catholics have popes and Mary. Everywhere you look, this is the way humanity does. They promote their God through their messengers that they deify. But arguably the most deceptive of gods in human history is today's secular humanist God. That says this. You ready? This is what our secular humanist friends want us to say. You are your own God. Boy, how many people are going to like that one? Why make a new one? I can be it. I can worship myself. And that's exactly the culture and society we live in today, folks. They're bowing down to themselves. Who's Lord? I am. That's what they say. Don't record that. Where's Ben? I can just hear that one coming. Beloved, you see it, don't you? Y'all see it? Nothing new under the sun, is it? Mankind creates man-made gods to attribute glory that should be going to the creator, to the creature. Now, what is the solution to this foolishness? What protects us from this wickedness? The answer is a right view of the one true God. You need to know Him. And you need to know that the only hope is found in the gospel. And if your God is not defined by this book, you're in trouble. And by the way, you better have a right hermeneutic too. Which means you better understand how to study the Bible. You don't make this book say what you want it to say. You need to know what it said when it was written. We need the author's original intent. Otherwise, ladies and gentlemen, we can all make a false religion with this book. And there are lots of them out there. If your, hermen- if your hermeneutic is bad, you will do the same thing. You know why your hermeneutic's bad, by the way? Because your heart's bad. That's very important. If your heart's bad, your method of studying the Bible will become bad. And you will make a God in your own image, even out of this book. That's scary, isn't it? What should we do when we come to this place? We should fall on our knees and say, God... Make sure my heart's right. Oh, God, check my hermeneutic. Oh, God, help me to understand what the Bible really says about who you are. And oh, God, give me a heart that's submissive to you. We are vulnerable, folks. We are still susceptible to exalting ourselves over over the one true God. It should be all of our prayers continuously... Please have mercy on me, God. Remind me of who you are and expose my sinful tendencies. Otherwise, we will find ourselves doing exactly what these people did. Folks, I can't stress this enough to you. Some of, you, some of us uh, sometimes say, well, Mike, you are always hammering on me to check my heart. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. I want to kill sin daily, and the only way that's going to happen is is if he exposes me. Expose me, God. I don't want to mess up. Please show me where I'm wrong. 
If that is not your plea, we are in trouble. Because we'll find ourselves being just like these people. By the way, I want to finish strong. How about you guys? I want to be at the end where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Listen, check your theology always against the scriptures. Make sure your view of God is accurate. Notice third, the missionaries knew the truth, so they responded appropriately. The apostles' humble correction of their theology. Notice verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. The missionary's response is perfect. (laughs) Really, I pray we would all respond this way when we are offered worship in the place of God, right? Even in the smallest amount. Let us break down their, their evil thoughts and humbly confront them with the truth. Notice first their immediate response. The way this is worded, Paul and Barnabas might not have initially understood that they were giving them credit as gods when they spoke initially with that Lyconian language. But either way, once they figured it out that that's what was happening, immediately they responded with tearing their robes. This is brings us second to their humble response. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? In the Jewish tradition, tearing one's robe was a sign of grief and horror. In Jewish, their, their, their actions screamed in effect, We object! We are nothing like what you say! We are horrified at this notion. They would have no part of this worship. Their actions matched their words. And notice it says, crying out and saying, Beloved, I believe there is a time for raising your voice. And this was one of them. (laughs) This was a time to get emotional. Let your emotions take hold. Again, emotions led by truth are not always bad. To raise your voice and cry out when somebody's calling you a god is probably a good thing. Say, stop! You can hear them almost screaming out, yelling, what are you doing? Please stop! That's what they're getting at. What in the world are you doing? You have lost your minds! Notice third, their confrontational correction Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature. And preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. As we've seen before, we should marvel over the 
precision of the apostles' words. Again, I wish I had this gift. I don't think I do. They have a gift of being able to say so much with so little words. They speak, and when he speaks, it's like one sentence, and the whole argument is one. They're amazing. Notice first the powerful rhetorical question. Men, why are you doing these things? The implied answer is what? You have absolutely no reason for giving us any credit. You, you should not be worshiping us. The question calls into question their, the other people's entire worldview. One question says, do you understand that you are totally out of your mind? Everything you think, the opposite is true. Next, we see the humble association. Look what he says. Now, only Paul could do this. He says, you're out of your mind, and I'm just like you. (laughs) But he does it without contradicting himself. Basically, what he says is, look, I have the same nature. I'm just a man. What are you doing? This is so humble and self-deprecating. Every false teacher known to man seeks to exalt himself to earn an audience. But not gospel preachers. Did you hear that? Gospel preachers are not about themselves. They are about Jesus Christ and Him alone. The gospel preacher identifies himself with his audience. He says, I'm a sinner too. I'm a human like you. We're this way. But I've got good news. And his name is Jesus Christ. The gospel preacher identifies himself with his audience. I am you. We're not divine. We are humans like you. We have the same creature status as you. By the way, a false teacher would probably have agreed with the crowd and said something like this, Joyce Myers, well, yes, we are like gods because we have all knowledge like him. What? What are we doing? Beloved, do you understand that that's what the word of faith people do? They deify themselves. Paul and Barnabas say and object and they cry out, No, we're like you. We're just humans. Notice the main message. We are here to preach the gospel to you. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. In this one verse, we can see a summary of the entire, uh, of the entire gospel ministry. I think I could preach, like I said, an entire sermon on this one verse. So much truth in this one verse. It's a systematic theology in this one verse. Just to give you a summary, there's the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of harmartiology, which is the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of Scripture. is all found in this one verse. Truly a treasure chest of glory. In one sentence. Notice first they they preach the gospel. 
Obviously, this is the good news of Jesus, right? Who he is and the redeemer of the mankind. This is who Paul and Barnabas had been proclaiming. Remember, the miracle was about confirming the message of Jesus Christ. Notice all the substance of the message included a turning from their man-made gods to the one true living God revealed in the gospel. As I've said, the gospel, beloved, is confrontational. It never says, try Jesus and then return him if you don't like him. You have a money-back guarantee. It never says, try Jesus by adding him to your pantheon of other gods. It never says, try Jesus. He might make your worldly pleasures more available to you and attainable for you, your best life now. It says, Jesus is good news. So turn from your wicked, man-made, self-exalting, worthless gods and follow God. That's what it says. It says a hard truth, doesn't it? That's what the gospel screams. God does not want us to keep our lust while we pursue God. God wants us to abandon our lusts and find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. That is the gospel. Listen closely, friends. Calling a person to repentance is one of the most kind and loving things we could ever do. Confrontation is not being mean. It's being loving. It's saying you are dying. There is hope. Turn from the death and embrace the Savior and be satisfied with Him alone. There's no hope outside of Him. Please turn to Him today. If there's someone in this room that doesn't know Him, recognize your sin. Turn from it and trust in Christ today. He came to die for you. He loves you. Turn to Him. That's what the gospel says. Is it confrontational? Yes. But it's loving. We are calling them to turn from their sin that leads to death and judgment. We are calling them to turn and embrace the all-satisfying living God. If you walked up on somebody and saw that they were eating poison, that you knew it was going to kill them, would it be, oh, you need to be more tolerant and let them just keep doing it? That would be the most unloving thing you could possibly do. Throw it down. Embrace Christ. I just love how Paul just says it and lays it out there, doesn't he? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. This word vain thing literally means to be of no use. Idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. That's what he means. Paul speaks the truth. He holds no punches here. He says, in effect, listen closely. What you are doing with these worthless, fruitless, powerless, truth-lacking gods, turn from and embrace the worthy, fruitful, powerful, truth-revealing, living God. That's what he says. It's amazing, isn't it? Notice the message also includes a biblically informed revelation. He quotes from the verse that we read in Psalm 146 today. 
with the title, A Living God. Paul then launches out into an explanation of God. Notice in verse 15 it says, Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and it is all that is in them. That's a direct quote from Psalm 146.6. By the way, he just stood on this presupposition, didn't he? So you turn around and say, wait, 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 wait. I need to prove that the source that I'm going to give you is real and it's truthful and it's accurate. No! He just quoted from it and said, listen, this is who God is because the scriptures reveal this is who he is. He stood on the scriptures. He quoted it. Paul doesn't say, well, let's see if we can find some common ground between your definition of God and mine. He didn't do that. He confronted them. Instead, he says, you need to turn from your gods to the only true God that has been caring for you your entire life. And by the way, he doesn't use the way of the master view here. He doesn't. He doesn't say, did you lie? Did you steal? I'm not saying don't ever use that. Okay, listen to me closely. I'm not saying don't ever use that. But... He doesn't say that, does he? He says, God's been taking care of you your entire life, and you've been rejecting him. You have false gods. You need to repent. That's what he says. That's pretty direct, isn't it? Which is what? The first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Again, this is gentle confrontation, though. God has allowed the nations to go their own way, thus exposing their idol-making tendencies. Yet Paul does not allow them to excuse, to have excuses because he lays out the general revelation of God that had been given to them for, from the beginning. And again, folks, this is so crucial. You've got to get this. Paul is doing, and when he writes Romans 1, it's like you can see... It's exactly what he was thinking on the mission field. He's doing the same exact thing, what he said. When he wrote Romans 1 and says, everybody knows there is a God, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, all he's doing is pinning exactly what he's seen true in the field. The Holy Spirit's giving him the words, obviously. And yet, notice, he states, God did not leave himself without a witness, a testimony. What is that testimony? General revelation. He left a general revelation in that he did good. What does the word good mean? It means worthy of praise. God has done what's worthy of praise. And what is that? And gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What has God's general revelation done? I don't know about you guys. But it screams common grace, doesn't it? Everywhere you look. Is the whole world starving to death? No. A lot, of people, a lot of people are hungry. But as a whole, the world as a whole has been fed for thousands of years. Do you understand? Why? God's common grace. Do you understand if it stopped raining, we'd all starve to death? Do you understand? Even if we were able to change the salt water into fresh water, it'd be pretty hard, wouldn't it? But he keeps giving rain. What a God, right? With these words, Paul reveals that God is a gracious God. 
And they are on the wrong path, and they need to turn and embrace him. The wild thing is, is look, they respond the opposite way. Now, if you didn't know the depravity of man, these next two verses should just like make it very clear to you. He just said, God has fed you. He has satisfied you. You're on the wrong way, and I have good news for you. And what do they do? They kill him. They pick up stones, and they kill him. They attempt to kill Paul. Look at 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, those crowds that he was talking to, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Remember, we saw previously that the Jews in Antioch and Iconium did not accept the gospel. In fact, they had run them out of town and previously had sought to stone them. Now... They found a place where they could accomplish their deed. It was the city of Lystra where everybody was a pagan and everybody hated God. So they come and somehow they convince the crowd to kill those that they were trying to worship just previously. They have Paul stoned to death. Now, Folks, I usually don't. I usually try not to get too graphic. But do you understand that if they thought that he was dead, there must have been a lot of blood? Do you understand? You usually, when you go to stone somebody, you're thinking, "I want to kill you." Do you understand that that means they had boulders and rocks and stuff, and they probably pummeled his head with rocks? Do you understand that they, they, didn't, they didn't think, well, maybe one more stone, he might be dead. They left him thinking that he was dead. Wow. Here's the gospel ministry. You ready? This can be messy. It can leave your brains all over the place. You can be persecuted. How messy is it? You go from worshiped to murdered within a matter of days. This is the cost sometimes of ministry. Again, I've, we've said this countless times. and We just don't know what persecution's like here. We just have so small of a view of just how costly it can be to follow Christ. Oh, I have to go with a clunker for a vehicle. Can you believe it? I only have one vehicle for my house. Man, my smartphone sure is dated. Friends, days are coming. It could change. 
if your understanding of the glory of the gospel is not correct, those will be very, very bad days for you. I want to call you to evaluate your understanding of the gospel. Ask yourself a question. Is the God that satisfies you with food and the Bible, is he all satisfying to you? If not, there is a huge call for repentance today. Don't want to wait another day. Christ is your hope and him alone. Let's pray. Father, you are kind to us. You have blessed us with your word. You have blessed us with the treasures of knowing your son. Father, we do not think that this means that we should be worshipped by any stretch of the imagination. We know, Lord, that we are just your unworthy slaves. And we come to you in humble adoration, wanting to worship you and you alone. Father, we pray that you will help us to be a testimony of your grace to this world. We pray that we will be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That we will proclaim the message with boldness and courage and confidence in Christ. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and help us to be a testimony in this pagan world. All for your glory and your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.